DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, presents The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free, with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher was ordained in 1979 as a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He obtained his doctorate from the Gregorian University, and he has dedicated many years to an extensive ministry of retreats, spiritual direction, and teaching about the spiritual life. Father Gallagher is the author of seven books published by the Crossroad Publishing Company on the spiritual teaching of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. Father Gallagher is featured on the EWTN series, Living the Discerning Life, the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola. The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free, with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. The first rule. In persons who are going from mortal sin to mortal sin, the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to propose apparent pleasures to them, leading them to imagine sensual delights and pleasures in order to hold them more and make them grow in their vices and sins. In these persons, the good spirit uses a contrary method, stinging and biting their consciences through their rational power of moral judgment. Father Gallagher, we just reflected on the first rule in the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Help us to understand where we go from here with this particular rule. I think because these rules are born from experience, you know, as we said earlier, that St. Ignatius didn't write them in a library. He wrote them by observing his own experience and then the experience of others who pretty quickly began coming for his help. That the best way to understand that text we've just heard of that rule is to look at an experience and then move from the experience to understanding the text of the rule. And the experience I'd like to uh, share is that of St. Augustine. It is the spiritual experience that he undergoes in the minutes, literally, which precede his powerful moment of conversion, that famous moment after 20 years away from God and that anguished prayer, how long will I go on saying tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why not now? Mm-hmm. And then uh, Augustine feels the storm of tears welling up in his heart. He's sitting in the garden with his close friend, Olypius, runs into the interior garden, flings himself on the ground beneath the fig tree. His tears begin to fall, and that anguished prayer, why not now? How long will I go on saying tomorrow? Hears over the garden wall the sing-song voice of the child saying, take and read, take and read. Understands that the Lord is inviting him to pick up the scripture and open and read does so, and the scripture falls open to Romans 13. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Make no provision for the desires of the flesh, but put on the Lord Jesus. His heart has changed. He goes in to speak to his mother, St. Monica, and a life of holiness begins. The experience I'd like to describe begins, actually takes place in the minutes which precede that moment of conversion. Now, its background really goes back to when Augustine was 15. His father could see that his, his boy was brilliant, and he found ways for him to study. But when Augustine was 15, in our terms, the family finances didn't allow that. And so Augustine spent a year in idleness, and that's when things take the wrong turn. And he describes himself from his small native town of Tagaste in what is northern Africa and what is today Tunisia, looking to the metropolis of the day, which is Carthage, the, the large city, with longing to be sent there so that he can begin his studies in rhetoric. And in fact, he will go the next year and succeed brilliantly at the studies, but with a great longing for 
a situation in which all the moral boundaries will be removed. It's contemporary. Here is the high school senior who is about to leave home and go off to college. And he describes this elsewhere in his confessions when he says, In my youth I burned to get my fill of evil things. I dared to run wild and different and dark ways. And you can hear in that there's a great energy. I burned to get my fill of evil things. It's not a healthy spiritual energy. But there's a great drive. His imagination is filled with all the sensual delights and the promiscuity and the rest, with all the restrictions removed that he awaits and and wants and and burns to uh, experience as he looks at this from his native town of Tagaste. He does go to Carthage the following year, does brilliantly in his studies, but begins a kind of very contemporary story, if I can reverently say that, of promiscuity, a child out of wedlock, Eastern religions, and all the rest. And this goes on for the next 20 years in Augustine's life. However, something else begins to happen. And that is what Ignatius calls a fruitless seedings of sorrow and a weariness without rest and a proud dejection. Something in him is too empty, can't find peace, is troubled, twists and turns, and, and is anxious and unsatisfied, and something is too superficial in his life. And these two movements largely describe the next 20 years, in spiritually speaking, of his life. The overwhelming impulse, the burning to get his fill of evil things, which dominates over these years, but the growing insatisfaction and anguish and inner bitterness and trouble and superficiality and emptiness, which will not leave him in peace. Now, on this particular day, Augustine is sitting at home with his close friend Olypius and another friend of his, a man named Ponticianus like himself, an African, uh, a good Christian, and a high official in the imperial court, which was in Milan in those days. And as they're speaking, Ponticianus tells a story, uh, the way any of us would in conversation with a friend, just something he's heard, with no idea of what this is going to do in Augustine's heart, of two lesser officials in the emperor's court who'd been out walking, come across a house where the community of Christians had gone in, and there had found a copy of the life of St. Anthony of the Desert, written by St. Athanasius, kind of a classic, famous saint's life in the history of the church, and had begun to read it. And in reading it, had read of that classic moment when Anthony's parents have died. He's a young man. He's wondering, asking the Lord what the Lord wants him to do with his life. And as his question is stirring within him, he enters the church, and the gospel's being read, and it's the, the rich young man. If you would be perfect, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me understands that this is the Lord's answer to him, goes home and does it, gathers the family possessions, sells them, gives them to the poor, begins a life of service of the poor, which eventually leads to the desert and the life of one of the greatest saints really in the church's history. As these two minor officials read this, their hearts are are struck, and they resolve on the spot that they're going to do the same. And they do it. They go back, resign their positions, give away what they have, join the community of Christians, and dedicate their lives to Christ. Now, Ponticianus tells this story and eventually takes his leave as the conversation concludes with no idea that in the telling of this story, a storm has awakened in the heart of Augustine because Augustine cannot help but compare his own inability year after year after year to change his life and to turn toward God with these two men who no sooner hear God's call than they respond to it. And he describes powerfully in the confessions the, 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 now the, the, the bitterness and the anguish that fill his heart as at this point after the conversation and the twisting and turning on his chain, the longing 
to change and get and and the straining in, interiorly to get nearer to his goal which is a conversion of life in god but still the chains holding him back and the inability there's a kind of a forward and back in this a longing to move forward toward God and something that's holding him back toward the old life of sin. And voices stealthily plucking at his back, he says, saying, you'll never have this again. You'll never be allowed to do that again. You're too weak. You can't do it. How many times have you tried? And the voices discourage him and hold him back. Then something else comes into the experience. And probably the best thing for me is just to read this right from his text in the Confessions. Mm-hmm. And he says, but by now I had turned my eyes elsewhere. And while I stood trembling at the barrier... On the other side, I could see the chaste beauty of continence. That's what a, with a capital C. It's his way of describing the Holy Spirit speaking in his heart. In all her serene, unsullied joy, as she modestly beckoned me to cross over and hesitate no more. She stretched out loving hands to welcome and embrace me. And you can sense now, something has changed in the experience. The bitterness and the anguish and the burden has washed out something gentle and warm and strengthening and inviting and loving has come into the experience. Holding up a host of good examples to my eyes, many others who have done this, she smiled at me to give me courage as though she were saying, can you not do what these men and women do? Do you think they find the strength to do it in themselves, not in the Lord their God? Why do you try to stand in your own strength and fail? Cast yourself upon God and have no fear. He will not shrink away and let you fall. Cast yourself upon him without fear for he will welcome you and cure you of your ills. And it's at this point that he feels the storm of tears welling up in his heart, flings himself in the garden, inner garden under the fig tree. As his tears begin to fall, take and read Romans 13, and his life has changed. Now how do we make sense out of all the different threads that are woven through this spiritual experience, that that burning to get his fill of evil things, the imagination filled with all the sensual delights and the rest, that weariness without rest, that emptiness, that bitterness and anguish, that inability to find peace, those voices stealthily plucking at his back, why even try, you're too weak, how many times have you tried, you'll never be able to do it. The voice of, of the Holy Spirit figured here as continence, smiling at him to give him courage, saying, oh, look at all the others they were, who did it, they were no stronger than you. Trust in God, as he did it in them, he'll do it in you, he won't let you down. It's this kind of experience that Ignatius is describing in the first rule and really in the second rule. So let's move from that experience now to the text of the rule, if we may. The first rule. In persons who are going from mortal sin to mortal sin, the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to propose apparent pleasures to them, leading them to imagine sensual delights and pleasures in order to hold them more and make them grow in their vices and sins. In these persons, The good spirit uses a contrary method, stinging and biting their consciences through their rational power of moral judgment. We heard the text of this rule. Ignatius says, the first rule is this. In persons who are going from mortal sin to mortal sin, you can hear the young Augustine. Well, let me ask, is that real today? With great reverence, Are there people who live in that situation when their lives, like the young Augustine, are heading away from God and towards serious sin? Mm -hmm. Here is a college sophomore who stopped going to Mass when he went to college two years ago, has gotten involved in a life of promiscuity and everything that goes with that lifestyle. Here is a man in his 40s, hasn't been to church for 20 years now, not always faithful to his wife and all that goes with that lifestyle. 
is willing to engage in seriously dishonest business practices when it serves a purpose for him at times. Ignatius says, in persons who are going from mortal sin to mortal sin, in any life of a person who is heading in a pretty confirmed way, away from God and towards serious sin, this is what we're going to look for. This is what we can expect to happen in terms of spiritual experience. He says, in such persons, the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to propose apparent pleasures to them. Now, when Ignatius speaks of the enemy, what he has in mind is obviously, in the first place, the personal angelic being, the evil one, whom the scriptures describe as the tempter, the accuser, the one who is the liar. Ignatius very much shares the church's faith in the reality of the enemy as that personal, as the evil one, the personal angelic being. Enemy also would include the legacy of original sin within us, and that is, even though we are healed through baptism, still something is weakened in us through original sin. And we can have pulls right within our own humanity, which unless resisted will be inimical to or pull us away from where God really wants us to go. Our Catholic spiritual tradition has words for this. We speak of the flesh, which has desires, which war against the spirit. St. Paul uses that language. Or in the first letter of John, concupiscence. Mm -hmm. Later, the theologians call this the seven capital sins, just tendencies within us which unless resisted will pull us away from God. This would be also what Ignatius understands by the enemy. And finally, it's just the classic triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm -hmm. Finally, the world. Influences around us in the world, which unless resisted, let's say certain usages, uses, for example, of the media or certain places, certain kinds of relationships, which unless resisted will pull us away from God. So when Ignatius speaks of the enemy, that's what he means. And in people whose lives, like the young Augustine, are heading away from God and towards serious sin, Ignatius says the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to act in certain ways. What if we know what those are? Mm. And you see in terms of what you called so, so, so beautifully the big three, be aware, understand, take action. We're going to get to that second step all the more quickly. We're going to be able to name what's going on, understand what is the action of the enemy, because we already know the way the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to act in certain spiritual situations. I should say along the way that Ignatius does us a great service in simply letting us know that there is an enemy in the spiritual life. The hardest of all spiritual situations is when we don't even know the players. Once we begin to understand what's at work in the spiritual situation, then we can all the more quickly and accurately and effectively respond, in this case, to the enemy's tactics. Well, let's just say already, we're going to say it immediately, but I don't want to let even a minute go without saying this. If there is enemy, there is even more a savior. The enemy is very weak. His power is shattered in the infinite power and love of the savior. But having said that, it is wise to know that there is an enemy. Actually, I think, Chris, all of us know this. Right. Whenever we sincerely try to take new steps to love and serve the Lord in prayer or in service and living the gospel and involvement in the church, we all know that something in us, as much as we want that, something in us resists. Okay, we're probably touching there something of what Ignatius has in mind by the enemy. We'll return in just a moment to The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? 
Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Discernment of Spirits, Setting Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher. So Ignatius tells us that when a person is heading away from God and towards serious sin, like the young Augustine, the college sophomore, the 41-year-old man, the enemy, Ignatius says, is ordinarily accustomed to propose apparent pleasures to them, leading them to imagine sensual delights and pleasures obviously, in order to hold them more and make them grow in their vices and sins. You can see the enemy doing that in the young Augustine. I burned to get my fill of evil things. His imagination just filled with images of sensual delights. And it works. It holds him for 20 years in his life, away from God. The college sophomore, it's two years already. And what lies ahead if his eyes are not opened a little to what's going on? The 41-year-old man, it's already been 20 years of his life. And again, our hearts long to see his eyes opened a little to realize what's going on. When you mention that, uh, of those things that will come into our minds as those distractions, as those temptations, those things that draw us away, even more difficult today because the media that we have now, we are surrounded like he never was. I mean, we have, what are, with, if it's television, the Internet, music, everything around us surrounds us in a very concrete way besides those things that are our imaginations or the things that come from within that the modern man needs this more than ever before 
So glad you've added that to our conversation. Absolutely. We speak of our culture as a culture of the image. The image can do great good. If we think of the great works of art, think of the, the beautiful paintings of, of the Lord or of the Virgin Mary or films of the life of Jesus and, and so on, just being able to watch on television the journeys of the Holy Father. The image and the media can do enormous good, but it can also very much obey this tactic of the enemy. When the college sophomore kind of flops down in front of the TV late at night and watches for a few hours things that it would be better that he not have watched, what goes on in his imagination? Which spirit is at work in that? Mm-hmm. So that we do well to watch what's happening on the level of images, the images that we allow to enter. What Ignatius will say here is that when a person is in that situation of moving away from God and towards serious sin, that's the part of our humanity in which the enemy works, in the imagination, and precisely filling it with sensual images. Here's the college sophomore. Phone call, 10 o'clock at night, one of his, in quotes, friends. A group of us are considering going down to the Caribbean for winter break. Do you want to come? What goes through his imagination? Which spirit is at work in order to hold them more in their vices and sins, Ignatius says. Once we know that this is how the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to act in that spiritual situation, please God will see it all the more clearly and be able to respond. Parenthetically, how does Ignatius know how the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to act in a person whose life is heading away from God and towards serious sin? It's been there. Mm-hmm. This is autobiography. The great gift is that his experience of that time when he was far from God becomes redemptive and salvific for others. And that's the beauty. There is nothing in our lives. If any of us, as we are listening to this, can recognize, I may very gently and reverently say this, a a period like this in our life, we need to know from Ignatius' own experience and Augustine's experience and so many others that there is no period in our life that cannot be turned to blessedness and to good, that cannot be redeemed and become, as I'm saying, salvific. Once our lives change, those very periods in our lives can become a source of grace for us and for others. What's that famous line in Augustine when he takes those words of St. Paul, God works for good in all things with those who love him, and adds two words. God works for good in all things, even sin, in those who love him. He, he, like Ignatius, experienced that in his life. But there's a second part to this rule. There always is, and that's the beauty of this, that this is... This is a teaching of redemption, a teaching of grace. There's a second half to this rule, because if that's what the enemy is doing, something else is happening on the part of the good spirit. And so Ignatius says, in these persons heading away from God and towards serious sin, the good spirit uses a contrary method. And when Ignatius speaks of good spirit, he means, obviously, above all, the Holy Spirit, God, certainly means the good angels, who are God's messengers to strengthen and enlighten and encourage us along the way as the scriptures show repeatedly. Mm-hmm. He means also the, the infinite richness of the power of God's grace within us, given to us through baptism. If there is a concupiscence in us as a legacy of original sin, even more through baptism there is a power of grace. And so sanctifying grace, the indwelling of the Trinity within us, the power to believe, to love, to hope, the theological virtues, all the other virtues, the gifts of the spirits, of the Holy Spirit to us, personal gifts that God gives us. There is within us a richness of grace that is part of what Ignatius means by good spirit. 
And also Ignatius means influences around us in the world. If there are influences, influences around us in the world, which unless resisted will lead us away from God even more, there are endless influences around us in the world to which, if we are only open, to which will lead us toward God. For example, for St. Ignatius, his sister-in-law, and the two books she gives him, as we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. are clearly instrumentalities of the Good Spirit. Ponticianus and the story that he tells Augustine is clearly an instrument of the Good Spirit working through him in Augustine's life. Just a little bit of thought will reveal to us endless influences, people, church communities, books, and endlessly around us, where God is constantly working around us in the world. This is what Ignatius means then by the Good Spirit. And I'll use the term from, from now on in that total sense of really God himself and all the ways in which God works in our hearts to lead us toward good. Now, in people who are in that situation, like the young Augustine, mm-hmm. the Good Spirit, St. Ignatius says, does exactly the contrary of what the enemy does. And this is an important thing in these rules. If the enemy does one thing, the good spirit is going to do exactly the contrary. So if the enemy attempts to facilitate this movement away from God and towards serious sin, the good spirit is going to do exactly the opposite and attempt attempt to hinder that movement. And so Ignatius says, in these persons, the good spirit uses a contrary method, stinging and biting their consciences through their rational power of moral judgment. Can you see that twisting and turning? I love it, stinging and biting. Yes, what I want you to do is shock me out of where I'm going. (laughs) That's exactly it. That's exactly, you've, you've named it in a few words. That's exactly what the Good Spirit is trying to do. It's that discomfort, that inability to find peace. It's Augustine who is that weariness without rest and that superficiality and the emptiness which simply do not allow him to find peace. That's what awakens him to the need to make the only change that will ever really make his heart happy. This famous sentence, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Mm-hmm. So that if the enemy works in the imagination of a, of a person in this situation, the good spirit works in the reason through their rational power of moral judgment, stinging and biting. Let's take the 41-year-old man, 20 years now away from God. And now in God's providence, his young son is beginning to take catechism classes toward First Communion. He'll take him down to Mass on Sunday. He doesn't stay there. His wife will bring him back. But new thoughts are coming now. He knows at some point his son could ask him, Well, Dad, Mom and I go. Mom will receive communion with me. Why don't you join us? And what's going to happen the day when his son actually does receive communion? So new thoughts are kind of stirring now within him. Let's put him in the car driving home from work on this day. And let's say that it's one of those driving situations, maybe on a highway or where his mind is somewhat free even as he drives. And by God's grace, the radio is off, the cell phone is off, and he's able to hear his own heart. And he finds thoughts like these arising. Look, why are you living the way you live? You know you make your wife so unhappy this way. Why do you do it? You know that you're not really happy yourself living this way. How long are you going to go on like this? When you look back 10, 20 years from now at the way you're living today, Are you going to be happy with what you see? Now you can hear that those are thoughts which are stinging and biting. They're uncomfortable uh, thoughts that are stirring within this man. And he has a choice. It would be as simple if he chooses as reaching down and turning on the radio. And it's over. But we can also hear that if he is willing to allow those thoughts 
stinging and biting in his conscience through his rational power of moral judgment, if he's a, willing to allow them to work, he is just a hair's breadth away from a change and a conversion and a whole new life in communion with God. Can you, that, that's the action of the good spirit, stinging and biting. We speak of our God as a God of love, as a God of peace. And he is a God of peace, but he is above all a God of love who loves us too much to ever simply let us go. And he will sting and bite. The good spirit uses a contrary method. Until our hearts see, and they make the only change that can make them happy. I think the most beautiful literary representation of this that I, that, that I think we have is Francis Thompson's beautiful poem, The Hound of Heaven. That whole poem is a representation of the stinging and biting action of the good spirit. And one like Thompson at that point in his life, fleeing from God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the year, the years. And then that beautiful moment when finally the human heart stops running and the footsteps also fall silent at his side, halts by me that footfall. And then this marvelous question, is my gloom after all, all the twisting and turning and bitterness and anguish, is my gloom after all, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly? That is, Shade, yes, gloom, bitterness, emptiness, struggle, but it never was anything other than the shade of God's hand outstretched caressingly, calling the person back to him. In my own ministry as a priest, I, I love this when, let's say the 41-year-old man does listen to the action of the Good Spirit and comes back and wants to speak and pours out the story of the bitterness and emptiness and anguish of his life, which to him are the clearest sign of how far God is from him. And you can show him that very emptiness and bitterness is the clearest sign that God has always loved you too much to let you go. It's the action of the good spirit in a person who is heading away from God. So th this is the first rule. When a person is in this unhappy spiritual situation of heading away from God and towards serious sin, the enemy will fill the imagination with sensual images to keep the person going this way. Good spirit will sting and bite in the conscience through the rational power of moral judgment to awaken the person to a need for a change. And if the person is open, a new life can begin. Thank you, Father Gallagher. It's a privilege. You've been listening to The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our mission. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Discernment of Spirits, Setting the Captives Free with Father Timothy Gallagher. <laughs>